0: This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. I'm Faith Saley. Eric Toda is a master marketer, brand visionary, and strong supporter of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Professionally, Eric is the global head of social marketing and executive director of Meta Prosper, both at Facebook's parent company, Meta. Yet in the years following a slate of AAPI-directed violent crimes, Eric's grown a reputation as a vocal advocate for his community, both in business and broader society. Eric doesn't shy away from tough issues or hard talk. He shared stories of violence directed at his grandfather, discrimination he grew up with in Northern California, and the moment that propelled him into public advocacy. He also spoke with us about the world he wants to leave for his children. But, before we tackle the future, we're going to take a trip to the past. We begin the conversation with a topic that can be daunting for anyone: parental expectations. All right, Eric, I I just want to start out by getting the hard stuff out of the way. We're going to we're going to go a little dark, and I would like you to explain how you disappointed your mother. Because I've heard you say that she wanted you to be an optometrist. Go.
1: Man, she really did. She really did. Um, This will actually be the first time I ever speak about this. Um, And and this piece of information is the first time it'll ever be truly, truly public. Um, I'm actually blind in the left eye. Um, Really? No way. Yeah. So faith, you know, you did your research on me. This is one thing you didn't know. I'm blind, uh, legally blind in the left eye. Uh, When I was five years old, um, I was a bit rambunctious of a child and I wasn't listening to my mother when she was telling me to, to not go into, uh, you know, some bushes uh, Mm -hmm. in the middle of January uh, where there was Mm -hmm. just literally just sticks. It was like, like, like little spears everywhere. Um, and, And unfortunately, unfortunately, um, one of those little spears hit me in the eye and oh uh, and I lost my vision. And so at a very early age, um, I had to deal with um, a little bit of, a, you know, a little bit of, you know, an adjustment, only having one eye. And I saw a ton of optometrists during the time, a ton of ophthalmologists during that time. And my uncle was actually one of our optometrists and my, and my mother f- saw that profession as so honorable because of how they were helping me and how they were, you know, supporting me. And so, you know, when, um, when my cousin started to, you know, go down the path uh, of being an optometrist, she really wanted me to be an optometrist as well. Um, She really wanted me to, she said that I could help relate, you know, to, to, to kids like me. Um, She thought that I could, you know, show empathy to, you know, to kids that didn't listen to their mother's. Um, all that stuff. And so, yes, um, the you know, I've, you know, when I didn't become an optometrist, uh, my mother was certainly disappointed. Um, I haven't asked her how she feels now. Um, something tells me that she, I, maybe she would still want me to be an optometrist. I don't know. <laughs> There's still time. Yeah, there's hey, hey, there's still there's always there's time, timeline. baby. There's always time um, as long as
0: you're a global optometrist. Yeah,
1: you know what? Like it doesn't matter if I'm on TV anything like that. She want she really wanted me to be an optometrist. So. Yeah. so, so yes, um, I she was certainly disappointed when I chose uh, another path for sure.
0: So I didn't. Re- so thank you for sharing that yeah. because I I didn't realize that's where it was going to go because I have heard you kind of casually mentioned your mom wanted you to be an optometrist in the context of talking about some stereotypical expectations of Asian-American parents, which is, and, and I'm I'm quoting you, uh, which is a lot of, a lot of parents want their kids to be doctors and lawyers, right? I did not see it veering in that rather heartwarming Oh, direction. I wanted to
1: give you something that, you know, you didn't have yet. I yeah, mean, here's the thing, here's, Keep a them thing. here's the thing, there's still certainly that pressure, right? I think- um, my mother, being an immigrant from the Philippines, you know the the level of success to her is um, uh, postgraduate degrees. Um, doesn't matter what they are, just postgraduate degrees. Um, so when I when I decided not to be an optometrist, she's like, "Great, then you'll be an attorney." And and, and I took the LSAT. You know, I, I got in law school, all, all that good stuff, right? And so. You know, and obviously I didn't go, but, you know, even after that, she's like, well, you're going to get your MBA, right? And I was like, what is it? What is with this? So, so again, there's certainly still that aspect of it for sure. There's always been that pressure. There's always been, you know, that undercurrent of the the immigrant mindset expectation of what success looks like to what mm-hmm. the reality looks like of what success is actually redefined in america now and so um yeah i mean you're you're not wrong i just uh yeah wanted to give you something a little different
0: i love that um your success in in a field that is decidedly not uh medical or law is is a challenge to stereotypes but also you have been really transparent about the fact that, again, quoting you, you barely graduated high school.
1: I mean, that's not untrue. I, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I think high school was really difficult for me um, for a number of different reasons. And the easiest thing for me to say was, ah, this school is not for me. Right. Um, but I've done a lot of work on myself with my therapist and, you know, taking care of my mental health and really understanding why I do things and understand why I think things. And when I think back during my high school time, it wasn't that just high school or it wasn't that school just wasn't my thing. It was because school is very difficult for me because I grew up in a town. um, that was predominantly white that didn't have a lot of people that looked like me. And immediately you feel pretty isolated. You feel different. So that's one thing that you're thinking about alongside school. The second thing is, it's that when when you have that and you also have these expectations of, okay, well, if he is one of the only Asian people in the school, he must be amazing at math. That's another mm-hmm. thing you have to think about alongside the other thing and alongside the, and alongside just the basics of school. And then-
0: And alongside the fact that you were blind in one eye. I mean, there's certainly that too.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly that too. Um, But, you know, and then and then on top of all of that, you do feel and sense and witness and experience discrimination. Um, And that happened pretty frequently to me. And uh, for a long time. Can you
0: can you give us uh, I'm sure there are countless examples, but what kind of stuff were you dealing with growing up in Moraga, California?
1: Yeah. Uh for those of you who don't know, Moraga is a suburbs of the Bay Area. It's uh it's an affluent, uh predominantly um Caucasian town. And you know, being one of the only Asian families there, you know, and I I grew up there from when I was five in, until I graduated high school. Um I actually live about two minutes from Moraga now. Um hmm. it's and we could go into that. There's a whole there's a whole reason for that. Um but the things that you experience are significant otherness where you open up your history books and you see parts of American history in your history books as you're a child. And you see things that have defined the United States and the people who that have defined the United States, good or bad. And when you don't see yourself in those history books, you, they immediately say, well, who the hell are you? And do you even belong here? When did you come to the United States, Eric? And, for a little bit of history, my family came to the United States pre-gold rush. So I'm fifth generation fourth generation Japanese American uh, from Central California. And you know, I don't speak another language. Um my grandparents were born here, my great grandparents were born here in Monterey and when I get I get asked, you know, where are you from? I'm like I'm from Monterey. <laughs> really you know? And they're like are they're like, they're like, well that's not true. You're from another foreign you're from a foreign place and you feel that that you feel those questions in your heart you feel the weight of those questions you feel ashamed to be different you wish that people didn't they you wish that people looked at like you like at you but they saw themselves so they wouldn't have to ask questions um you wish that you didn't bring the foods that you did to school because I love mm. Filipino food and my mom made a ton of Filipino food. And I couldn't bring it to school because it's very aromatic. Um, and because of that, the weight that you pull with you through your education and through um, and, and through school is something it's it's additional to the already unique pressures of being a teenager um, in high school trying to figure things out. And, you know, we, there are many times in which my family, when I was growing up, left a restaurant early because someone on another side of the restaurant didn't like how we looked like, you know, before the food even came. Um, there are many times where, you know, in high school, I asked um, a, a girl to homecoming and she, you know, point blank tells me, um, I don't like Asian guys. Why would you even ask me? And, and that's totally okay in her mind. Right. And so I think, I do think you, you harbor all of these things. And then again, like alongside the pressures of high school, the pressures of, and this is, you know, I went to a very great high school that is top, I think top 20 in the state. And so the pressures were already there to succeed. And I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And that's why I barely graduated high school because I barely survived high school.
0: Um, just a side note, sorry, I just have to say this, Greg, in case it gives anybody hope. My niece who is 13 and is black has announced she will never date anyone who's not Asian and she will only marry an Asian man. So I don't know if we can all look at that as progress.
1: You know, I, I think the bigger thing for me is first off, like you learn saying that to someone somewhere, right? Oh, I don't like Asian people. You learn that that's a learned behavior. You know, my kids are mixed race. They're Jewish and Asian, and you know there are, there are many people that won't look like them. There are many people that do look like them. But the reality is, is that you will never hear from me and my wife telling our kids like, you know, you you can't be with them because they don't look like you. Like you you love who you love. You, you do you right. But I do mm-hmm. think I think yeah, there's that's certainly progress. I also think too, just generally speaking, um, generally speaking. I would love for us to be, to be in a place in which that's not the first thing that you think about when right. you get asked the homecoming, right. like you tell yeah. me, tell me I have bad breath or something. Like, tell me, right. tell me, I don't right. dress Tell me well. you can't dance. Right. Tell me I can't dance. Right. Like to tell me, right. to tell of me course. that, like, that's the first thing that you tell me, right. like, like, let me down easy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> have some tact here. Have some tact. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Greg, you were going to say something.
2: No, I I think this is is such an interesting area we're exploring because it, uh, it's the minority tax, you know, it's the, it's all of the other stuff that you have to navigate, um, just to compete, feel accepted, a sense of belonging. And I think all these things that Eric is, is describing, uh, you know, it's oftentimes referred to as that tax. And, you know, it's the extra burden that you carry. And not only do you, I don't know if you felt this, Eric, but, you know, similar uh, to your experience, mine was, was, was uh, very much the same. Um, but the other side of that coin is sometimes you don't even feel accepted in your own community because you're, yes. you're trying to navigate um, the majority world and you're trying to do everything you can. And as a young child, you don't have that. You don't have the tools yet to navigate that. You don't have the tools to say, just be yourself and just do you. And just because you're trying to deal with all of your your peer group and and just fit in. And you're not yet equipped with the, the, the sense of self-esteem and self-awareness and self-worth to say, you know what? I am who I am. Now, there are some kids who are. There are some kids who early on to sort of adapt that um, that coping mechanism and they're just going to be who they are and they're able to push through. But most kids aren't equipped. And so you're doing that and you overcompensate. And so I used to come back to my neighborhood and the kids in my neighborhood used to like I went to a Catholic school and so we used to have to wear these ties and I'd come home with my little clip on and like the kids in my neighborhood would like snatch my clip on off and I'd have to fight. So I was fighting at school and when I got home, because when I got home, the kids like, oh, you trying to be white and or you think you're cute or you think you're smarter than us and you think you and so you're sort of hot too much
0: be- and never enough.
2: And you don't know who you are you don't know who you are who you should try to be and it's a really challenging thing and um the other thing that i think um Mm -hmm. eric that you touched on that i would i think we should explore a little bit is is it also causes friction between minority groups Mm -hmm. right because it's then it's like who is accepted who's not accepted well just don't be like them right and then you might be actually be able to fit in or we might accept you as long as you're not like them and it causes divisions between groups. And so I think this is such a powerful thing that you're sharing, um, Eric, that, you know, faith that is worthy of exploration as well.
0: Eric, I, uh, my, my kids go to schools where, um, that are my kids go to two separate schools. Both of their schools, uh, are more than 50% Asian American kids. And, um, a couple of years ago, my son came home with a book about um, a baseball game being started in a Japanese internment camp.
1: The game that saved us. Yeah.
0: Yes. Great book. The game great that book. saved us. Yeah, he also came home and with tears in his eyes, was bursting to tell me, Mom, have you ever heard about Angel Island, I think?
1: Huh? Yeah.
0: Where Yeah. Where, the, uh, where there was a prison for Chinese immigrants who were mm-hmm. just- just trying to come over to America. Yeah, and then, in, the, and then, in
1: the 1800s, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah indefinitely yeah. imprisoned. And, and his class was learning about the poetry they left on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I thought, thank God, my kid, no matter what color my kid is, thank God he's learning this history of America now. Because I didn't learn about yeah. Japanese internment camps until I was going to grad school. And my Japanese American friend said, you don't know about i mean no shame she was like you don't know no. about this my grandparents were in them mhm so so i hope you're not that old but i hope that your experience is uh, of not seeing yourself and and not seeing the stories of asian americans um as as part of a curriculum in school i hope that is going extinct
1: you know i i hope so too and i you know i i think You know, there's only so much I could hope. Um, And that is why I joined uh, the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center um, as the as one of the board directors. um, Because our hope is that if you look at the National Mall, and you think about the museums that are on the National Mall celebrating the rich history of the United States, you certainly have um the the national museum of african-american history and culture which is incredible if you haven't gone yet um but it, it details the rich history that may not be told in history books uh, i think that's going to change now because it again it's on the national mall so that you, you kind of force feed that into k through 12. um the american latino the the, the natural history museum of the american latino um the natural uh the, the national women's history museum um and the natural Uh, the National History Museum of the Indigenous People of of America. Like you, you, if you, when you have those alongside, again, and also alongside the Holocaust Museum, right? And so I think the more that you have and celebrate the rich history, good and bad, because again, no history is really clean of of a people, especially in the United States, you gain something called perspective and perspective breeds empathy. And so I do think that, you know, the curriculum is going to change. And I think it's going to change with the work that we're doing at the Smithsonian, because we will have a we will have a, a place on the National Mall to be celebrated, um, but also that will help us get into curriculum for K through 12. Um, and that's the ultimate end goal for me, is that hope wasn't enough. Hope is not a strategy to me. Um, action, you know, to me, especially in this time of my life, um, was more important to me. And, succeed or fail, at least I tried. Because again, like to me, hope is not a strategy.
0: Greg, it's, yeah. we're pretty lucky that not only are we talking to Eric today, but Eric, Greg and I have talked with Jorge Zamanillo. Who nice. is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you know who he is, but I'll remind folks that he, he is, is leading the creation of the uh, Hispanic Museum of the Smithsonian. So Yes. I mean, it's and, no coincidence. Way, of us,
1: you got two of us. Yeah. Both, storytellers. both not approved by the Smithsonian to be talking about it. But here we are. I love it.
2: But here we are. I'm sorry, <laughs>
1: Smithsonian.
2: <laughs> well, it, we it, it's public enough that uh, uh, the U.S. Bank has contributed a million dollars to that yes. museum. And so we look forward to supporting um the Asian Museum too. Whenever you know, when that effort really gets underway, I think that, I think those things are important, and they're important for corporations and business to understand their role in it. You know, it's things like, you know, obviously our partnership with you, Eric, and Meta Prosper, and which is all about advancing the the Asian Pacific Islander um, uh, community. Um, you know, it it's it's a it's an important time for companies to continue to lean forward and lean in. Um, not only because it's the right thing to do, but what we're talking about in all of this—it's actually good business too. It's Great business. It's actually good business. It's like great. It, it, the reason business. representation matters is clearly it's the right thing morally. It's the right social thing to do. But the reason it's the right thing to do is because it's more profitable. Like, I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> let's, I mean, let's just look at the numbers,
1: right? Like, listen, most CEOs who don't look like me and you probably went to business school. In business school, they probably, outside of partying and drinking, um, they probably had to go to an economics class, right? And in that economics class, they probably said, hey, if you're running a business, look at, might be a good thing to look at the census report. And if you look at the census report, the two fastest growing populations in the United States are Asian Americans, half of that fueled by immigration, and the African American population. Combined, you're looking at trillions and trillions of dollars in total addressable market. Now, if you are gonna deprioritize DEI and if you are gonna deprioritize two of those populations, guess what? New York Times estimates before 2042, those two populations will be the majority of United States. That means they are your consumer today. And so if you're not building equity with those
2: consumers today, your business will cease to exist. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. It, it, it's to your point, it's simple economics. And I think, um, you know, all of, all, all of this is a wake up call to business to really understand because the, the real business case and faith has heard me say this a number of times, the real business case today Preach. around DEI church, we don't, we don't go to church. We gonna go to church today. The real business case today about DEI is all about inclusive growth and innovation. Like that is the business case. Like it it's, it's inclusion in terms of looking at the marketplace in the broadest possible perspective and doing things at scale. That's what inclusive growth is. It's That's it's it. it's it's approaching the marketplace at scale. And who doesn't want growth in scale? It's innovation yeah. in the sense that you're you're looking at your products and services and trying to serve the broadest possible market. And if you start with insights from the Hispanic, Asian American, African American and other. If you start with those insights at the very beginning as you're developing and designing your products and services, you're actually designing for everybody. You're actually including everybody um, into the into the product design. And so, I Absolutely. I think it's such an exciting time um, for for those of us who represent and deeply care about these communities to be in leadership roles. Um, the responsibilities that we carry, I think, it always is the extra burden. Um, of shouldering your community. I don't know if you feel this, um, Eric, in the sense that when you're in these leadership positions in these companies, you recognize that you're not only representing yourself, but you're representing a whole community behind you. And so you feel an undue sense of burden that if you fail, you're actually letting um, your community down And and you know you should have followed mom's advice to be an optometrist or what did you say (laughs) optometrist potato (laughs) potato I should have done that but no seriously like you actually do sort of understand that it's a it's an undue burden in that sense but it's also fuels you because you're actually trying to serve something bigger than yourself yeah Um, and that's how you that's how you go forward I mean the burden is real right the burden I mean the weight
1: that you feel is, um, is not for the faint of heart um, because you do carry, you, you, you carry the hopes and, you know, the, um, the ambitions of the community, you know, in the actions that you do. Um, but you also carry, and we don't talk about this a lot. I think you mentioned it a bit earlier. You also carry the criticisms. Um, majority of the people who critique and criticize my actions um, the things that I've built my career, the way I talk, the fact that I don't speak another language, uh, the fact that I'm not married to, you know, a, a, a full Asian yeah. woman, um, are Asian, those people are Asian and yeah. you carry that with you. And again, growing up in this town, not seeing other Asian people, this is, this is all new to me, right? This is like this Asian versus Asian thing is very new to me, but, but that's why, when you talk about failure and when you talk about you, 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 you acknowledge that if you fail, you don't just fail yourself. You, you, you fail the ambitions and the dreams of the community. Um, that's why I won't fail. Yeah. I just won't. Yeah. I just, you know, I think there's going to come a day where I can't do the things that I do. Um, and that's the day that I I stop, but that's not, that's not today. You know what I mean, and yeah. that's why that's why I just won't. I have a relentless drive um, to continue to push, but to succeed and and to succeed for not just my community, but for all the other communities that are adjacent to us. Because to me, um, it's not enough that I lift my community. It's not enough that I lift my community and the Black community. It's not enough that I lift my community and the Hispanic community. It's 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 because I don't just represent. Half of my children, I represent the totality of them and the totality of their friends. And so it's, it's my drive to succeed and to change the perspective of people who look like me, of people that I put on that may not look like me. And, and that's why, again, you know, I just, I refuse to fail, refuse.
2: Yeah.
0: I want to talk about how you became so vocal about this, how you, how you really found your purpose in, in making this kind of, um, personal mandate public. And I don't want to just make the Japanese internment camp a passing reference because this plays a part in, in your journey. Your, your grandfather, Kenji James Toda was, was he put in an internment camp? Was his family put in one?
1: yeah so my grandfather uh was a strawberry farmer in watsonville california which is you know a little bit on the outskirts of monterey um and uh, during world war ii right after pearl harbor um they have that united states mandate uh that all japanese people um, are enemy of the state and they will be placed into an internment camp and while his family was getting shipped off by the u.s army into um into an internment camp in Arizona, post in Arizona. Um he decided on the way there that he was going to enlist in the US Army. Um, while the US Army was taking away his farm. And the ultimate, the the US Army actually ultimately gave, like, you know, there's there's, there's, there's that there's that saying, like, oh, you gave the farm away. They literally gave the farm away um hmm. to a family, to another family that, you know, some families held it on, held on to it for when the family came back this family took the farm and we never saw it again. And so we lost the farm. Um, you know, my, my grandfather's family ultimately went to a post in Arizona. And my grandfather enlisted in the U S army in a all Japanese regiment um, codenamed uh, the 442nd regiment. Um, the motto for them was go for broke. And mm. their ho- it was all Japanese again. It was all Japanese, all Japanese American. And they are still, to this day, the highest decorated U.S. Army regiment um, in all of armed forces.
0: That gives me chills. Mm
1: -hmm. To this day, to this day. Um, And many of you, many people don't don't know this too. There was, um, I forgot, you know, I, I, I forgot the name of it, but there was also, and again, during this time, there were other regiments dedicated to other minority groups too, like, you know, the Black community and, and the Jewish community. And they fought alongside them because I remember what's really interesting. Um, my wife, my wife's late uh, grandfather, I remember the first, one of the first things he asked me when he met me, he's like, did your grandfather fight in the 442nd? I was like, he did. He's like, he did. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's like, I fought alongside the 442nd uh, in Germany. Um, when, you know, when we were fighting, when we were fighting the, the Nazis and I was like, and he was he was Jewish. Like he he's Jewish and so he fought in the Jewish regiment. And so um it's a very decorated history of the mm-hmm. United States that not a lot of people know about.
0: So your to be clear, your grandfather was what, third third generation American. Correct.
1: Correct. Yeah. He was did, born he, didn't he, was, even, he was born in Watsonville.
0: Yeah, he didn't even speak Japanese.
1: No, he did not.
0: And and his his family's farm was taken away. He 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 enlists He's a World War II veteran. And then when, when you were talking about the challenges you faced as a teenager growing up, your, your grandfather was brutally attacked when you were a teenager.
1: Correct. Um, when I was 14, uh, my grandfather was a victim of a hate crime in San Francisco. You know, he used to go for walks all the time, you know, in the um, Ren Golden Gate Park. And um, that used to be like his thing. And, yeah, he was uh, he was targeted in a very brutal hate crime that left him, you know, uh, in a hospital bed for a long time. Um, They never found the perpetrators. Um, They just heard from some eyewitnesses that there were racial slurs thrown at him. And, you know, I, I think the when I think about that, you know, the biggest thing that I think about was. This guy fought for the freedom and democracy that allowed that people part. to walk free on the streets you that know yeah. and like doesn't matter, like uh, he looks a certain way sure whatever but he, this this guy fought uh in what is known as the greatest generation um and probably one of the greatest victories um in world history you know to be treated like that and i thought uh again when i was 14 i thought that was and again middle of high school um, I thought that you know that was so wrong, and I wish I wish every day that back then I I could have done something more.
0: And then you did you 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 really have done something more. So so in 2020 and and 2021, you became an incredibly vocal critic of racism and violence facing the AAPI community. Can you talk about the moment when you, when you realized you? I mean you you wrote something called My People Are Dying in Silence and I'm Here with a Megaphone. What was your moment of realizing I have Mm -hmm. this megaphone, I have to use it?
1: You know, I I, I think even before that, I think uh, the United States was going through a significant cultural awakening. And I I think we still are to this day. Um, You know, starting with in, in 2017, the Me Too movement In which, you know, we started to question, again, treatment of of women in the workplace, um, you know, the pay gap, representation of women, and ultimately that opened the door, you know, for the Black community to start doing the same. and, And rightfully so. And you start to see a lot of voices that look like yours that maybe like me for the first 12 years, 15 years of their career, just focused on their career, right? I'm going to put together a good marketing career. I'm going to be a great business executive. You know, I'm going to do me. But then one of the things that inspired me the most was I started to see friends that came up with me that are other executives from the black community to start to really advocate for who they are on all levels. And one of the things that I saw through that especially during that time that's the summer of 2020 was that the xenophobia against the Asian American community and the rhetoric against the Asian American community was at the highest and no one was really talking about it. Certainly we were talking about other things and rightfully so, but you know, one of the things that I saw was that while the black community and the female community were still very 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 vocal, uh the Asian American community was silent, like absolutely silent. And I think many people were scared. I think um many people didn't know what to say. I think, um, Greg, like Kyle, what would you mentioned? And, and, and I, I fit on this too. It's, you don't feel like you have the credibility to speak for an entire community. For me, I I grew up in an all white town. I was the only Asian, one of the only Asian people. And then my cousins are from San Francisco and they see me and they're like, look at, look, look at this white guy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, I'm on this spectrum of ethnicity, right? I'm like somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not as Asian as they want me to be, and I, I'm I'm more white than than they don't want, right? And so, <clears throat> um, I never felt like I had a place, you know, to to really speak for the community because one, the community never accepted me because of where I sat, um, and two, um, I've been really taught to just keep my nose clean, keep my head down and, and, and and don't speak up. Uh, What is also not said um, during my grandfather's hate crime attack was that the question was asked, do we continue the, to search for the perpetrators? And my family said, no, my family said, no, like, they're like, let's just, let's just leave it. Let's just leave it. Just leave it the way you know. Is it's all right? Like you know, we don't we didn't want to cause a stir, right? And I think a lot wow. of that's generational trauma. If you think about it, hmm. you know, my grandfather and his family were in in, in incarceration camps with it like with an AK-47, like to your face, right? Of course you're not going to speak up. Of course you're not going to look them in the eyes. Of course you're not going to try to ruffle some feathers and like I'm going to press charges. No, of course you're not going to do that, right? Because all you want to do is get that gun out of your face and get on with your life and go and go into your little corner that you've been given. And so that's been passed on, you know, through my family, you know, even to when I became an executive, you know, some of the tips that I got was like, Eric, don't speak up, Eric, be great at math, Eric, don't don't challenge people, Eric, when a white executive looks you in the eye, don't look at them in the eye. Those are all things that were passed down to me because of all the things that we've been through as a family throughout history. And so that's if you, like
0: a DNA inheritance, right? Yeah. Was it your dad who told you not to look white executives in the eye?
1: That was generational trauma. I think that is, is, is something that you carry with you. Right. And <sighs> you hear it quite like a lot of my, my, my black friends tell me that that is something that they carry with them as well. Is that, you know, when you see, when you, know, when you, when you. When you carry something that's so ingrained in your history, it's mm-hmm. hard for you not to escape it. It's hard for you not to hear in the back of your head, even though you know, even though you know, you you might have the potential to change the trajectory, right? And for me.
0: Eric, I, 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 you're giving me this really, you're illuminating for me the really pernicious, really pernicious side of model minority. Right. Which which is that mm-hmm. this this head down compliance don't speak up, which which has uh, is it fair to say enabled a lot of Asian American communities to succeed to a point comes from such a, a horrific and destructive place. You
2: know, it's a survival, and, and at cost, survival you you know, yeah. it is, and it's, it 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 is it, in in some of it too. Uh, Faith, I'm glad you brought up the model minority myth because. It's success at what cost, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's success in quotes. And like, what did, what did you have to give up in terms of who you are um, in order to achieve uh, achieve that success and, and which, which breeds more trauma, <laughs> which gets passed down from generation to generation.
1: It breeds more trauma because it does isolate you. I think too, the further you get away from the, like, the exact like catalytic moment of that, you 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 wonder like why you do things. You wonder why yeah. why you why you are afraid of other communities, you know, why you don't trust, you know, mm-hmm. certain people that don't look like you. And I think that's absolutely wrong. I think it's absolutely wrong. And so to go back to your original question, Faith, is, you know, I started to see a lot of these things happening and I started to see my black friends start to grapple with the same Type of truth especially being an executive and what the thing that tipped the scales for me was at the i wouldn't say the peak but at a surge of anti-asian violence in new york and oakland and san francisco um there were about eight nine days straight of attacks against the community that left a a few people a few um elderly people dead and then we go into the super bowl and all the Super Bowl spots are very positive, you know. Joe Biden's in the administration now, hooray, you know. And like we got through the summer, you know. And um, I thought that was really wrong. I thought that was really wrong, um, most because as an advertiser and a marketer, um, all it takes is for one. It, uh, it's going to take consistency to defeat racism. It's going to take. It's going to take consistency, you know, to stand with minority communities. It's. It's going to take consistency of, of messaging. You know, to reinforce your commitment, you know, to your employee base that probably isn't just one race, and none of the brands did that, and it was very disappointing to me. <clears throat> and I get a phone call from Adweek, um, asking if I wanted to write a thought piece on what's happening to the community as an Asian American executive. I said no pretty quickly. I was within ten seconds. I said no. I was like, <laughs> "Wrong person asked. Sorry." Um, <laughs> And the reason is because I was like I don't have a place to do this like this is what 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 possibly could I say what possibly could I say that could help people mm. um and well they and their convincing argument to me from them was Eric um you're actually our last call um there were about eight other executives that said no to us wow eight other and wow um I know every single one of those eight. Right. And I respect them. I respect them. I respect why they said no. Um, and to me, I was, just, I felt ashamed. I felt super ashamed. And, you know, those other eight executives speak other languages, you know, they're, they're, they're further down the spectrum than I am, you know? And, and I was like, you know what, like, I might have something to say. I might. And, yeah. um, and that's when I put pen to paper and I, I wrote it and I sat on it um, for about 48 hours. And Adweek kept calling. Like, did you like? Did, are you gonna do it? Did you write it? You know, we got yeah. watch this thing, man. And I was like, I was like, I wrote it. Uh, I don't know if it's any good. I don't. I don't know if people are gonna read this, but I wrote it and I wrote what was in my head and my heart. Um, and I remember sending it in uh, to Adweek and and crying, crying quite a bit. I remember not sleeping. Uh, I remember my wife. Um, asking me why I'm not sleeping. And I was just really nervous. I was really scared. Um, I was scared for a, mo- uh, a couple of different reasons. And this is kind of what <clears throat> part of the evolution of me. Um, I was scared because I didn't think I had a place to talk about the community I, I, or, or lead the community or even be a leader in the community. I've always known I, I've been in a great executive, a great leader that certainly looked like other people. Um, but that was never like a con like, I was never like, yes. And that's me an Asian American leader. Let's go. It's always, yes, that's me. I'm a marketing executive and I just happen to be Asian and that's, Mm -hmm. you know, still continues to be true. But now there's this other part of me where I'm like, but the part of my identity that I was not proud of before I am proud of now. And that was the change that I am proud Mm. of now. I am proud Mm -hmm. of it. And, even if you don't like it, and even if you don't think I should be proud of it, or even if you don't think I have the right to be proud of it, I'm gonna be proud of what I see in the mirror. And that was the change when I sent that piece in was I became proud of what I saw in the mirror and every my faults, um, where I was on the ethnicity spectrum, all that stuff. yeah. like I was like, that's it. Now, as an advertising and someone that's also in corporate comms, um, launching something on on any publication, Uh, on a Friday is, is not advised. It's not advised. And ad week was
0: it's Shabbat, man.
1: They're like, and they're like, they're like, you know what? This is launching today, Friday. And I was like, I was like, guys, no one's going to read this. It's also president's day weekend. I was like, no one's going to read this. I was like, this is doomed. This is doomed forever. Um, And I was so sad. I was so sad. I was like, I poured my heart into this piece And now no one's going to read it. And I went to sleep. And when I woke up, I look at my phone and I'm, you know, as a brand marketing professional, you always tell your agencies and, you know, the people internally like, oh, I'm going to make this go viral. You know, I'm going to like, watch this go, watch this, watch this start to trend, like watch this. And then you you do things and you make work and it goes viral and it it trends. And like, I won, I've won literal awards but doing just that, but seeing what I wrote that represented me, that represented my truth, that represented my experience, do what I do for a living, do those types of numbers, have those numbers dance, have those numbers shut down mm-hmm. ad week because they didn't have the server space. Um, it It showed me mm. that I... Oh, I, I shouldn't have waited so long. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I felt really bad about that. I felt super bad about that. And it opened the floodgates to a number of different people um, speaking up. I think a lot of people saw me go into the fire and not die. And so they spoke up too. <laughs> yeah. um, but the biggest thing that I felt was, damn, I didn't know was, I didn't know it was going to be so easy to be proud. Of who I was. I just didn't know. I had no idea. And uh, my only hope is that those actions made other people proud of who they were, no matter where they are on their journey. And so the piece that I wrote, like you mentioned, my people are dying in silence. I'm here with megaphone led to a number of different actions, one of which being the foundation and launching of a completely new organization dedicated to supporting Asian American small businesses in which I'm the founder and executive GM of um, that we launched at the White House a year after I wrote that piece. And so- um, And that's Meta Prosper. That's Meta Prosper. And it changed my life. Writing that piece changed my life. I think it uh, it opened up a a slew of new concerns for me, Um, but it's totally worth it. I think it's totally worth it to be proud of who you are. And it's, it feels weird to say that, but, um, before I didn't
2: think it was worth it. But demonstrating courage is never easy. I mean, it is, you know, I, I, it, what you demonstrated in that moment was incredible, um, courage and that gave others, um, the license and the, the space to feel safe to do so, which is why it's so incredibly powerful. Um, and why it's so important that companies like U.S. Bank and others are supporters of Meta Prosper and, and helping to provide um, resources to these small businesses and entrepreneurs who previously may have been hesitant or may have not known, um, you know, what are the steps to launch my business and what does success look like, and now you've empowered all of them and given them the sense of uh, courage that is necessary to be successful. So. Uh, you're a trailblazer, man, like that, that's, it, it's, it's crazy. And I don't, I, I hope you don't beat yourself up about that because that, that, that courage, that, that takes um, a long time to get to that place and space where any of us feel safe enough to demonstrate that kind of courage. You know, I think
1: a lot of what I, I thought about in that moment uh, with my grandfather, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I remember asking him, you know, right before he passed away, like, because I, I lived with him for a little bit after my grandmother passed to, you know, just take care of him, make, make him dinner, stuff like that. And so I got to know him really, really well. You know, he was he was part of that generation that just doesn't talk, right? That's just like, yeah. you know, kind of rough kind of gruff and like very, like hyper-masculine. And like, you know, had like calluses on his hands because he's a farmer and he likes to do things himself, you know, doesn't like to ask for directions. But as he got older and as I started to take care of him more, I started to ask more questions, you know about where he was from, um, you know what what was his, was his favorite things to grow on the farm, things like that. But the, the biggest question I asked him, and I was really nervous to ask him this, uh, as this is, I asked him, you know, why would you join the, the U.S. Army? You know what what went through your mind when you went when you joined the U.S. Army, as they were giving your farm away and putting mm-hmm. your putting your family in in prison camps and i remember he told me and this is the only time he ever talked to me about it because he wasn't really i don't i don't know why but he he, i know why he just didn't like talking about it um i joined and uh, everybody else joined uh because our hope was that it was our last chance to show that we were american yeah because you don't know what happens right you don't know what happens you saw what happened with the holocaust you saw what happened with slavery you saw what happened with all these different things and if you if history were to repeat itself, you don't know if you're going to get another chance to really prove you belong here. And so he felt putting on that uniform, fighting for the democracy and freedom that this country has afforded his family for generations, literally generations. Um, it was worth it. And his hope was that eventually someone like me or my dad or whoever, would yeah. be able to exercise those freedoms. Your kids, yeah. yeah, my kids. And so, when I wrote the piece, that's what I thought about. That's thought, like, if I don't oh, write yeah. this piece, I'm not exercising the freedoms that that this man fought for. He fought for, no doubt.
0: Eric, at the time that you wrote that piece, that. <laughs> in which you gave yourself a voice, but also empowered so many others to feel like they had a voice. Um, we're talking about it like it's, it's the long path. It's the past, right? But this is, this, this just happened in the last couple of years. Um, it, it was a time where so, so much of America's focus on discrimination was specifically anti-racist discrimination against black people. Um, right. Because we all know that George Floyd was murdered at the beginning of the pandemic. And there was so much, finally, so much attention and Black Lives Matter movement. And it feels like America a lot of times only has enough attention to pay to one minority at a time. Mm-hmm. And Greg, I, I, I with your guidance, I want to return to something that you kind of, you know, posited at the towards the beginning of this conversation, which is, which is, and I just defer to the both of you, like what do American minorities do when they're sort of pitted against each other, either through uh, minority myths or how much attention white America has to turn to discrimination for one minority at a time. What I, 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 don't know how often i get to hear a conversation between someone who is a black american and someone who is an asian american about this um this this kind of uh, us versus them mentality that has bubbled up uh, recurringly in our history
2: you know one of the, the the things that was really so troubling to me that it, it it got touched on a little bit but didn't get enough attention was how often uh, some of the violence against uh, Asian Americans was actually perpetrated by by black Americans and that was that was so unfortunate and so disappointing and distressful um, to me because the the issue is faith and not solely there's no silver bullet in any in, in any of this but it actually is education when you don't know your history or you've been miseducated about your 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 experience and you don't know the sacrifices that your grandfather and others have made and what they went through you do suffer this trauma and the unfortunate thing is in many cases particularly in certain urban areas um asian communities and black communities are in proximity to each other and so they're fighting for similar resources they're fighting for the same sort of recognition and awareness and clawing for for crumbs in many cases because they don't know their history and they don't know their shared history many people don't know the shared history between asians and blacks in this country Um, but it's important we start to examine that which is why educating our young people not only on our history as individual ethnic communities but the history of other ethnic communities is absolutely critical um, because you start to see how much we share um, how much we share in common and you know every one of our um, you know communities has so much richness that we've contributed to this country that we will get past this notion of otherism and it becomes this collectivism um, of us versus me. Um, Versus Eric, versus Jose, versus—it's like, hey man, like we, like we're better together, bro. Like our history and our talents and what we contribute are complementary, and our cultures are all complementary, and they all add, all add the beautiful, um, you know, cultural texture of America, which is this incredible quilt. And so I—that's part of it, you know. Faith is so much of the 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 incidents that Eric was referring to, and. It was really heartbreaking um, to see how much of that was being perpetrated by the, not only, um, but a lot of it was being perpetrated by members of the black community. And I think it's because there's so much pain and there's so much trauma that you tend to lash out to those that are in proximity, or you think are taking something away from you. When When there's a scarcity, when you have a scarcity mindset and you believe the pie is only so big, and you think that some group is actually taking something from you, And when you have a culture that is being fed nothing but fear and entertainment and news, what I call like has become angertainment, is only making us more angry and fearful Mm -hmm. of each other. And all of that is being fed to us. Um, I think the solution is really to really get back to the fundamentals of teaching our kids and getting back to educating us and what makes us better and what makes our common experiences um, and, and, and additive to this whole American experience.
1: I mean, I couldn't say it better myself, right? I think a lot of it's education and education breeds perspective, which breeds empathy. And I think if you, I mean, the reality is, is you don't hear my voice without the black community. You don't see Meta Prosper without the black community. Um, Our executive sponsor, our executive sponsor and biggest investor of Meta Prosper is black. And Hmm. I could tell you it's this awesome. right. Mm. I could tell you this right now. The hesitancy as we were building so much of this um, wasn't from the white community, wasn't from the black community, wasn't from the Hispanic community. The hesitancy while we were building this was from the Asian community yeah. internally. You know, and like, like, sure. they're like, why are you doing this? Like, is it really worth it? All this stuff. Black community is like, oh, we're Girl, all let's in. go. Let's go! Hey, like
2: it puts the chips. it puts it like yeah.
1: let go. The bets on the
0: table, Eric. You take yeah. it through, right? Yeah, yeah, what, and... What's that about? What's that about, Eric?
2: I don't know. I think there's a lot. There. I, I think there's, there's a, a lot, lot. there. There's a lot because the thing is, it, the, the thing is, and I'm not sure if it's true in this example. The one thing I can say, and not, I'm, again, I'm not trying to speak for my community, but my from my perspective. I, the the black community is not concerned or has no interest in assimilation, ever. Like that, mm. that is not that is not part of our success equation. Mm. It has never been, because we've never been accepted. <laughs> like like we when you start out in the founding document as three fifths a human being, like you understand yeah. how people view you, right? And so assimilation was not really something that was of interest. It always had to be sort of this courageous. You know, like we're just going for it like because we have nothing to lose. You know, when you feel you're on the bottom, you have nothing to lose, Faith. Yeah.
0: Like, no, it's like true. You are
2: gonna put you are gonna put all your chips in because what do you got yeah. to lose? Yeah, and I, I think they saw yeah. I think what
1: what they saw from Prosper and from me was maybe someone that could break the cycle. Maybe someone that could break history um and 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 start something new right and and i think that's why some of the the most support that we've ever like the like some of the most support we've ever received internally and even externally too is from the is from is from the black community um and i'm so grateful for that i think the mentorship that i've received the encouragement um to not assimilate the encouragement um to continue to speak my truth the encouragement to succeed Um is all from is all from the (laughs) black community. It's like it's 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 pretty incredible. And, And and again, like I think my hope is that the more I can talk about that, right? The more I can talk about that, the more that I allow allow people to understand this, the more that they realize that we are better together, that we are better in partnership, we are better in bridges. And you know, a lot of times you see. Uh, my Asian critics or even critics from other, other communities saying like, well, Eric Toad is successful because he just, he got a cheat code. Like he, he found the secret elevator mm-hmm. that Asian people mm-hmm. found for him. Right. And like, he has like, oh, he probably has like a bunch of Asian leaders that are just paving the path for him. Like that's, you know, he's like their golden boy. Uh, No, I've never had an Asian manager ever, ever, oh. ever, mm-hmm. ever, 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 And the voice that you hear today, the success that you've seen on my resume, the awards that I've put up, the numbers that I've driven, the billions of dollars that I've driven for businesses is because of the white and black and Hispanic community. Because they see more than just uh, uh, the model minority. They see more than just a preconceived notion. They see hopefully something different. And my hope is that the more I can model that, Um, and more selfishly, the more that my kids can see that, that that's what I'm modeling and heaven forbid, they decide to do
2: what I do. I made it a little bit easier for them. Maybe that part. That's an abundant mindset like that. Like that's the, that's, that's the complete opposite of that scarcity mindset I talked about.
0: And Eric, I've, I've heard you say that your, your catchphrase is how, how can I help you be better?
1: I wouldn't say it's my catchphrase. I would say it's more like, uh, I think it's just what set me apart in my career to be fair. You know, I I've, I've always been, I've always had this, I guess, understanding in my head that if I could help more people, um, mm-hmm. it'll open more doors for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe in a a Freudian slip way, um, uh, if I could help more people, maybe I could help myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could figure some stuff out for myself. Right. Maybe it'll make me feel better about who I am. Maybe make feel yeah. me feel better about who myself. Right. And so no matter who you are, CEO, um, an entry-level person right out of college, I will always end the conversation every single time without fail. It's good to talk to you. Um, if I could ever be helpful, just let me know. Like just let me know. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten, no one picks up, but that one time opens up a ton of doors, you know. I've uh, I've never applied for any job I've ever had in my entire career. I've always been recruited, and that recruitment is always because, and I, I believe this is because I've been helpful to the people who recruited me. Mm-hmm. Never once have I applied for a job. Um, um the the first job, but anything I everything after that after that everything after that <laughs> the yeah the yeah because I you know yeah. from from. Facebook to Nike, Nike to Snapchat, Snapchat to Airbnb, Airbnb to Gap, Gap back to Facebook, recruited. And because every single person that has recruited me, I've facilitated and built a relationship and equity into that relationship where if I could be helpful, they yeah. would let me know. That's the secret. The secret is literally just being helpful, right? It's just having that mm-hmm. mindset of like, how can I help more people?
2: Um mm-hmm to hopefully make their lives a little bit easier is is being in service to something bigger than yourself. And that, that draws people to you. And that's what, that, that brings incredible value to not only individuals, but to organizations. That's what, that's what makes organizations successful is when you have people who understand what the the first lesson you learn as a leader is that it's no longer about you. Yes. Yes. It's yeah. actually about the team. It's actually like it's no longer about you. <laughs> like it's about everybody else around you and how you help them perform at their best, how you bring value to others totally. around you, how do you move people and resources around ideas? Um like that to me if I ever have the opportunity to teach it, you know, at a university, like that's the first thing I learned in leadership. It's like it's not about you anymore. It's about everything but you. It's extraordinary, right? I think
1: it's extraordinary when you think about leadership styles. You know, one of the biggest criticisms that I get is I'm too flashy. I'm too loud. Mm. You know, Mm. I'm too self-promotional.
0: From whom do you get those criticisms?
1: Oh, I could throw a rock and I'll hit someone. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing. But here's the thing. And like, I get those criticisms, right? And I understand it. Because they're one, they're probably not used to seeing someone like me do those things. Um, two, I mean, that's probably the biggest one, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, they're like, like, whoa, this, look at this Asian
2: guy. Yeah. They're rooting, about, for, you to, they rooting for you to be being successful.
1: Proud, ta- being proud about <laughs> yeah, yeah. what he's built in a career, you know? Um, they're rooting for you to be successful until it happens. Exactly. and <laughs> And, you know, I think you've been told to be invisible for so damn long. That anything past invisible is self-promotional. And mm-hmm. it's not self-promotional. You're being a self-advocate for yourself. Yeah. And here's the reality, too. If you don't, here's the thing, too. I will never tell, I have a young daughter, right? She's four years old. I will never tell my daughter, don't be proud of who you are. Don't be proud of right. the things you did. You should feel proud first before yeah. anybody else is proud, right? And if people don't like that, forget them. Right. And does it suck? You know, when, when, people say those things about me, absolutely. But the, but the thing about it is, is that if I could give and build an elbow more space to make that normalized
2: mm-hmm. for other
1: people that look like me, mm-hmm. especially females that look like me, because they're yeah. disproportionately underrepresented, disproportionately affected, you know, they make eight, they make 60 cents to every dollar. Yeah. Of a white executive 60 cents. That's 40 yeah. cents difference. That's humongous. And if I could elbow out and normalize being an advocate for yourself, so hopefully they feel more comfortable doing it. I'll take all the hits then. Send them yeah. my way. Yeah. Send me all your anger in my yeah. DMs if it allows those people <laughs> to be proud of themselves. Send them my way. I'll take it.
0: Eric, I'm going to quote my husband here. The loudest boos come from the cheapest seats.
1: Ain't that the truth? Ain't that That's the truth? Good. And, it, and it, it, good. it takes a certain type of person to be on the court. It takes yeah. a certain yeah. type of person. It takes a certain type of person. It's very easy to have opinions. It's very easy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, to to point out flaws. It's yeah. very hard, very, very hard. You know, um, and I say this because I feel like I have, you know, to go into the fire. Very hard. Mm -hmm. Not it. It's not for the faint of heart. That's for damn sure.
2: Right. (laughs) Doing the work is hard.
1: It's hard. (laughs) It's hard work. And it's, you know, I, this is another first that I'm talking about this. You know, I struggle with, uh, I'm working on it. I've never had a panic attack in my entire life until I wrote that piece. Mm. and wow. since i wrote that mm. piece i've had five different panic attacks five different panic attacks uh, i've struggled with anxiety since then and i'm doing work on that i'm doing work on that mm-hmm. a lot of that a lot of the catalyst of that is you know um me not being able to please everybody me not being mm-hmm. able to hit 100 percent, me not being especially with my community right in my yeah. head i'm like of course I'm going to hit 100%. Like I'm doing good stuff yeah. for the community. They no. got to love me. They're going to yeah. love me. Yeah, they <laughs> gotta love me, right? No. 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 Maybe like 60%. All right? Yeah. Um, but that triggers a lot of things. Um and the panic attacks that I face, you know, I have I put a lot of good people around me, you know, I have a great therapist. You know, they help me work through it because I think in this evolution of of where I'm going in in my life and in my career, it's only going to get more intense. But I also need to have, just as much as I'm preaching empathy and perspective, you know, for other communities, I need to have empathy and perspective, you know, for myself.
2: Yeah. Thanks. And that is a very
1: yeah. tough thing. Like a lot of people don't understand that. Like when you step onto that court and you're trying to do the good work and you hear everything, you hear, I hear everything. I see everything, right? Mm-hmm. And if I open my DMs right now, it's nasty. It's real nasty stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that affects you. That affects you deeply and it could ruin a day very quickly. And that's kind of, that's what I want people to understand is that, yeah, I, I, I understand why you might not ride with me. I get it. Right. But you have to understand this is not for me. I promise you it's not for me. I promise you It's, it's honestly for my kids. Um, it's for something greater. It's for something greater. And Most times when people have those opinions or concerns about me, they've never even spoken to me.
0: They don't even know who I am. No, they don't know you. That's information about them and not you. I want to, I really want to thank you for sharing that something Greg and I have talked about multiple times in the past is how rare and essential vulnerability is to leadership.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and you're embodying that. Yeah. And, and we talked about it as grace, and it's not only giving grace to others, um, which is something we we certainly don't do enough of, in general, but giving grace to ourselves, like giving grace to ourselves to, to not have to always be right. You know, it, it's it's funny, Eric, because I talk about this a lot, and it's, you know, as leaders and somebody uh, like yourself who is so prominent in that way, we're so hardwired to be the 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 teacher and to show up with the answers that we don't give ourselves enough grace to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't figure it out. And I'm, and I'm not even concerned with, um, you know, trying to please people and have those answers or always to show up as this huge brand and this superhuman, as long as my kids and my wife and my family loves me and they, they think I'm great. Like, that's a hard thing to do. It's easier said than done. Um, Especially when you've had that kind of success, and you feel this this undue pressure to always meet that level of performance, to always meet that level of acceptance, and you know, I and I'm speaking for myself, and it's it's hard to let go of that and say I don't always need to have it um, have my cup filled that way. It's enough to be in the arena, and sometimes I'm a hit, and sometimes I'm a miss, um, and I'm probably gonna miss a lot you know, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> and, and, and this part of your strength and purpose is to have people witness you trying. That's it. They're that witnessing part, you yeah. trying whether, whether you fail or win. I, I, Eric, I don't know if this will resonate with you. I heard it a couple of weeks ago. I will, it, it soaked into my body and I was like, yes. Um, uh, I heard someone of note quoting Billie Jean King who said, pressure is privilege. Yeah. And and it reminded me that when I choose to, I keep, that I have a choice to put myself in these pressure filled situations, which of course is what you're doing on a, on a huge stage.
1: No, again, like, I feel really, I feel very honored, you know, to be able to, you know, speak my truth and have the platform that I do and, you know, use it to hopefully do more good. Um, And you're right. I, I, I think that to, to hit a hundred percent is, is, is just massively unrealistic. And Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, I had to, I'm still working through that. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, for me, it's, it's just understanding that I'm just trying, right. I just try, I continue to try. I'm not going to give up, especially, you know, to be fair, a lot of people are giving up. you know, a lot of people are, you know, moved on to the next thing, and i think for me the 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 fight that i have in me has broadened out now to just hopefully making business more diverse hopefully mm-hmm. making perspectives more diverse hopefully uh, generating more empathy but i think the bigger thing for me is just allowing for different variations of people who look like me to be successful versus mm-hmm. you just have to be one type of person that looks like me and that person is typically quiet. I personally, that, that person doesn't speak up and that person doesn't shake, you know, ruffle feathers. You know, I I I I I always talk about this and I was talking about this to, um, to an in- internship group the other day is that they're from multiple different walks of life and they're like well eric like what's your biggest tip uh you know for for us as we embark on on our internship journey and i was like well you want like the the executive response or do you yeah, want right. do you want like the real the personal talk? yeah yeah you know? yeah and, and they're like they're like what does that mean yeah. uh and uh and then like one per, you know one one brave woman from harvard she was you know she was like i want the real talk um and she's from the black community and I told her straight up, I was like, and I told all of them, I was like, you know, all of you look like variations of me, right? You're, you're all shades of brown and you're going into the marketing industry. Um, I'm going to give you the real talk that it's not going to be easy. It's not easy. I wish I could tell you. It's like, it's easy, but everyone's going to do it. But it's not going to be easy for not the reasons that you expect. It's not going to be easy because you're going to find yourself in rooms where you're the only person with a diverse perspective. It's not going to be easy because you're going to see that you are making 70, 80 cents to the dollar you know, to a to a, to a wide executive. It's not going to be easy because you're going to see work that represents your community that you're not going to like. And you have the decision to challenge that. It's not going to be easy for all those things but hopefully what is going to be easier for you and hopefully because of the work that i'm doing and hopefully the work that my that my colleagues are doing is they always say that you can't be what you can't see mm-hmm. and my hope is what's easier for you is for you to see what you can be that's my hope yeah. right Every, yeah. all those other things i can't i right. can't protect you <laughs> from that right what's going to happen is going to happen and you have some choices to make when that does happen but what i can Hopefully, promise you is because of our fight, because of our resolve, because it's not just yeah. this fine-tuned stop Asian hate thing, but instead, like a, a larger drive for the rest of my life. Is I need to be what you can see,
2: so that you can be it too. I, I love it, and what I what I really love about that is because it doesn't let individuals off the hook from having some accountable some accountability for our own success and failure, you know, so often when, you know, many of us don't achieve what I think we maybe anticipated coming out of, you know, uh, big schools and landing in these companies. And when things don't necessarily work out, which is why you're, you're, you're counsel on this is going to be hard. It's probably going to be harder than you think it's going to be. And it actually, it's not going to play out the way that you did. Like the way you have it mapped out in your head, I guarantee you it's not going to play out that way. Exactly. It's just not. It's not like it, it, it's not to say that you won't reach your destination, but it's not going to play out the way that you've got it planned. So just understand that right off the bat. And there are systems that need to be changed and you might have a bad manager. And there are a lot of factors that will determine your success or failure here. But the most important one is you, the most important one is your ability to fight, to navigate, to perform. Like nothing is more important than performance. So regardless of all these other things that happen to you, you've got to have performance. And the advice I always give um, people, Eric, and I hope you agree with this one, is I, I always tell people there is nothing more performance, as I said, than uh, nothing more important than performance. But the second thing after that, is you have to have sponsors. I'm not talking about mentorship. I'm talking about sponsors because everything about your career and your career trajectory, everything about your career is going to be discussed in rooms that you're not in. Exactly. That's 100% true. And so, you better have somebody in that room who is advocating for you, who knows your skills, your capabilities, who's willing to to advocate, to put their own personal equity on on the line for you. And I think that's the stuff that young people don't fully understand. Like, I hear I, I hear sometimes young people will come into the workplace and say, "I don't want to tell people all my business," and I don't know why they want. Like, people don't they actually don't really care what you did over the weekend, <laughs> like. They ask you that because they just want to know a little bit about you so they can trust you. Because it's yeah. all based on trust. They don't it's really a, care. It's relationships. Yeah, yeah. They don't really care what you do yeah. on your vacation. They only ask to see how vulnerable you're willing to be, how much about yourself, because they are seeking to trust you. And I think it's so important when we talk to young people to give them, like you said, like give them the real, like this is going to be hard and it's not going to be what you thought it is. So make sure that you're you're sort of sharing and building these relationships and in, in grounded in trust, you know, again, like the, you don't hear this voice, you know, this voice is not the product
1: of the Asian community. (laughs) It's not not the product of that. It's the product of, again, you know, a a, a handful of white executives that were just like, that's our guy. Like that's our guy for the (laughs) business. For right. the business, Not yes. that's our Asian guy, but like, right. that's our guy for the business. Like he right. is a business leader. Right. And right. this is also, this is like, they have said my names in rooms that I've never been in, you know, the yes. black community have said my names in rooms that I've never been in. Right. And yes. the black community doesn't see me as like, that's our Asian guy. They're like, no, no, no that's our guy.
0: Right.
2: Right. right.
1: And right. you're right. The foundation of that is excellent. It's, it has to be excellence. Um, yeah. It has to be excellence. Like you can believe all different things and you can advocate all you want. But what has made my voice resonate and I think give me a platform is because I've I've had an excellent career and yeah. I've had, you know, a very successful and award winning career that the marketing industry and the advertising industry has respected. And so I, I, I do think it's not just, it's not one or the other. Right. You can be both for sure, but you have to, you, for one to be successful, you have to be successful.
0: Yeah, Eric, you are turning your excellence into, you're enabling other, your, your community to, to succeed with Meta Prosper. Um I af, after listening to the two of you talk I want to sign up for the Greg and Eric 3-day empowerment retreat but I'm I'm let's going to ask a very let's Good do idea, it. Good idea. Let's yeah I'm in. Um I I want to just get to a very rudimentary question which is which is how does Meta Prosper work? What are your goals and what are you doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean Meta Prosper is well, let me define it this way, right? Every most companies have um an ERG for diverse, you know, communities, right? And those are more ERG
0: HR, means uh, yeah,
1: an, an employee resource group. Thanks. So you have one for you know for Asians, you have one for, for black community, um, for Latino community, et cetera. And and it's more for your internal employee base to find support, to find like-minded folks, et cetera. Um very internal focused. You know, one of the things that I saw three years ago is that. Um, coming from that soul of how do we support you know people who look like us, you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking about is um, how much of our content to onboard people in small businesses is in languages that people like me speak? And I did an audit, and it was almost zero and And I was like, okay, great. That's an easy one. great. let's do that. let's Let's do that, right? Um. Let's translate content to onboard people onto the business. And maybe by doing that, we'll build equity with them. Maybe we'll have some you know, stronger revenue potential. Maybe we'll build an economic engine. And boom, just like that, it happened. It was like one little move like that to translate content into 20 different languages you know, that represent a multitude of Americans um, generated economic opportunity for the company and for the community. And I thought to myself, what if we did this on a long-term basis? What if we did this every single day for every single month? And that became MetaProsper. MetaProsper is the official external support program uh, for Asian American small businesses, creators, and nonprofit. And really what we're looking to do is not just provide them with good training, not just provide them with opportunities like U.S. Bank sponsorship of the 626 night market, where we brought together a ton of different, you know, mom and pop shops, you know, training for financial literacy, you know, all of that stuff. It's it's how do we partner with our biggest mm-hmm. brands and clients mm-hmm. so that they can speak with the, probably one of the, you know, one of the biggest and fastest, you know, not probably, it is the biggest and fastest growing community in the United States to build equity. And how do we set better precedent to do that with the black community, with the Hispanic community? And, you know, we have a sister program called Meta Elevate that does just that for the black and Hispanic community. And so for us, um, for us it's how do we continue to show that representation isn't just a good thing to do, but it's a business imperative. It's a business imperative. And, you know, the reality is the reason why I am so... I have such conviction for this is because I'm a business person. I've been one Greg
0: Cunningham is nodding so hard. I'm
1: chomping, yeah. I'm a business. <laughs> I'm about to person. Snap my neck. I can I'm hear
0: sorry. you nod. Greg. I'm a business
1: person, right? I'm a business person, and there's something to be said about doing the right thing. There's something to be said about doing what's good. But whether or not you believe in what's good and what's right, you can never, ever, ever ever deny revenue and business results. My numbers don't lie. Elevate's numbers don't lie. And so whether you believe in what's happening to our communities, whether, you, whether you're whether you still grappling with it, or whether you're on the, the journey to understanding and having more empathy for people who don't look like you, you cannot deny dollar in, two dollars in you cannot deny 2 dollars become 5 dollars you cannot deny that and so that's why all these programs that we built have to be rooted in business because if we could change if we can change the mindset of supporting diverse communities from this feels like a good thing to do versus no 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 our business will cease to exist unless we do this because majority of american businesses grapple with that today just as they grapple with globalization Most American businesses right now, they're like, whoa, this is like the supply chain's all over the place, right? Fantastic. That's exactly what was always going to happen, right? Evolution is always going to happen. You cannot stop. You cannot stop the evolution of the American people. And Mm -hmm. unless you understand what the American people looks like tomorrow, your business will cease to exist. That I promise you. All right.
2: Greg
0: is, I love when Greg (laughs) agrees so hard, it makes him laugh.
2: Yeah, no, I, bro, you just you, you uh, there's so much I could say. I mean, Eric, man, thank you for for all of that because it is such a, um. It is such a poignant thing and so aligned, which is why U.S. Bank is so excited to be a part of Meta Prosper. By the way, because we do understand that, um, these businesses that Eric talked about, um, how. Prominent, the issues and the gaps are in terms of getting the appropriate tools, resources, information, and capital to these small businesses. Um, and Eric, we've spent a good part of this season on our podcast talking about how language is access, and you use the word um, translating and how you're translating content mm. for in over twenty languages. And you know, we've got this little film out there, uh, Eric, that I'm a I'm gonna put a plug in because. You know, I'm a I'm a, a closet marketer too, so I got to do a little promo for our film. It's called Translators, and it's uh, folks who are listening can go watch it at translatorsfilm.com. It's a short little fo- uh, film, twenty minute documentary about these families who translate everyday life for their family. And uh, oh, by the way, uh, we actually won best uh, short film at Tribeca X this year with the mm-hmm. film. So it, it's it's a topic that is really top of mind for us because we know that language actually is access. And the more that we can remove barriers for individuals, families, small businesses, we can actually help them fulfill their full potential. And the reason it's so important with small businesses and the folks that you're working with, and the reason we are so proud and and happy to be excited to be a part of Meta Prosper is because when these businesses succeed, all of us succeed, wealth disparities go away, communities are able to become more vibrant, there is no separation between um, racial justice and economic justice. They're inseparable. They're inseparable twins. You can't have one without the other. And so if we can help these small businesses grow and scale and create jobs and create vibrancy, we start to see improvement in all other dimensions of our society. And so I, I, I could not be more supportive of what you said. I cannot be more supportive of the work that you're doing. And you know, on behalf of everybody at the bank, man, just seriously thank you for all that you're doing, and thanks for your partnership with us. No,
1: I I, I appreciate you all. I appreciate Della Ang. Obviously, Della is a is a huge advocate yes. for. Um, you know, that's one of the biggest surprises to us. You know, as we were building Meta Prosper, um, again, like Prosper is was something that was born out of an idea. You know, we we got that out. You know, we we pulled it out the mud. You know, to yeah. you know, you know, to, to get it yeah. to get it launched, and I think one of the most beautiful things—I wouldn't even say surprising—the most beautiful things is the amount of Fortune 500 businesses, um, successful, successful financial institutions like U.S. Bank, that have reached out and said, "We love this. Like, yeah. let's partner. Like, there's something here, right? You know." Yeah. And, and I think it shows externally that. There is still a drive that there is still potential that there is still opportunity, you know, to to continue to one broaden the perspective, broaden the empathy, um, but also just build better business, you know, yeah. uh, overall and set better precedent. I think too, it shows internal validation of just like wait a second, U.S. Bank wants to partner with you, like like this is for real. Like I, to be fair, when US, when when you partnered with us, you know, I have this Apple ticker for the for the Meta stock the meta stock ticker right mm-hmm. that us bank announced its partnership with meta prosper showed up on the ticker wow you know how real that is
2: wow that's real you
1: know how real this came from an idea of just translating yeah, yeah, content yeah. you know yeah, yeah. that's real <laughs> stuff that's real yeah. real stuff that like i've never seen i was like oh my you know and i have i have friends that work that's in crazy. financial institutions texting me about that they're like i just saw this man is this the thing that you started and i was like yeah that's mm-hmm. crazy uh, yeah i think so you know so I, I damn, again <laughs> it's it's beautiful because it shows we're not alone, and I think that's one of the greatest things in the human existence to find is the feeling of not being alone. And whether it's in business, whether it's in your personal life, finding your tribes and finding the people who support the vision is uh, something that keeps the fire going. You know, so I'm, I I appreciate U.S. Bank and Della and and, and all of you for you know, being such great partners of us.
0: Eric, you do not need to ask us if you can be helpful today. You you have been, I, I thank you. You have been so inspiring, so real, so generous of spirit. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation.
1: I mean, I, I appreciate you two inviting me and, and having this conversation. Again, like it's, uh, we're in a really interesting time right now where the, mm-hmm. the conversation's, Mm-hmm. naturally evolving. I think people are are hitting, um, you know, uh, a plateau a little bit of, of, of equity and diversity, but, you know, it's up to people like us to continue that conversation because it's going to affect way more than us. And yeah. that's why, again, I think that's why the work of Prosper and the work of U.S. Bank together, you know, focused on business, focused on the bottom line, I think is so important because we show that, it's not a good thing. It's a strategy. It's a legit business strategy.
0: The legacy of your grandfather and his regiment, because you are you are for sure going for broke. So don't stop, okay?
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Oh my gosh. We told you it'd be an hour. This has to be a two-parter. We can't edit this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's it. That's great he got to do part one and two Eric, thank like, you man. so
0: much and Greg Greg thank you so much thanks yeah.
2: for giving us so much time Eric of course that was a great conversation I mean Eric seriously thank you
0: thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good if you like what you heard subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts we'll see you soon